For those who fish, this is the Drake cast. He was tying feathers on a hook. I'll do a hopper with a hopper dropper with a dropper hopper. The river was like a woman. Could be a disco midge, it could be a bead head. I'm your host, Elliot Adler. The DrakeCast is made possible through support from our friends at Yellow Dog Fly Fishing Adventures and Scott Fly Rods. Check them out at their respective websites. Uh, the next piece that I have for you is uh, if you have the good fortune to fish with a guide, you won't have the same experience as if you fished with me when I was guiding. Um. <laughs> this is Dylan Tomina. He's a pretty well-known fly fishing writer based in Washington State. He even contributed a few stories to the Drake a few years back. But if you missed that, you might have come across some of his writing in other fly fishing magazines, because he's been published just about everywhere. This is called The Worst Guide in the World. (laughs) Okay, I'm just going to come right out and say it. I sucked at guiding. My clients caught plenty of fish, but if I were a doctor, you might say I had a lousy bedside manner or what an old coach of mine constantly referred to as a piss-poor attitude. (laughs) The fact is, I could never stop thinking about whether or not various clients deserved to catch fish just because they could afford to travel and stay at an expensive lodge where I worked. That, and I was frequently impatient and sarcastic and irritable. But enough about my good days. (laughs) I guess I thought it was about the fish, and it turns out guiding is about people, no matter how dumb they might be. I tried to be a nice guy. I'd tell myself these people are on the trip of a lifetime, that they were too busy to learn how to actually fish, that blah, blah, blah. But it's not like I'm a completely unsympathetic person. I mean, okay, check this out. When a client described his long-anticipated fishing trip with a famous Florida tarpon guide and how he found himself unceremoniously deposited back at the dock at 10 a.m. for blowing two shots at big fish, I was filled with sympathy the guide. (laughs) What does it mean to be a fishing guide? I can't answer for anyone else, but this is what occurred to me about three weeks into my first season. If you take something that's inherently fun to do with people you like and do it with people you don't like for money, well, you can see where I'm going with this. (laughs) That thought haunted me through five summers especially while peeling the price stickers off thousands of dollars worth of brand new top-of-the-line rods and reels, and after loading backing, connecting lines, and tying leaders, handing it all back to some rich dentist from Akron while he told me all about what a great angler he was. Did he deserve the fish we would catch? Now, I don't want to make prejudiced statements or generalize, or actually, okay, I do. (laughs) What the hell? Here's a few things I learned. Doctors generally make the worst clients, followed by car dealers and anyone from Texas. (laughs) Women are the best clients. They actually listen and will always outfish their expert husbands. Clients who really want to whack a trophy so they can get it stuffed always catch the biggest fish no matter how hard you try to prevent it. (laughs) Note to doctors, car dealers, Texans, expert husbands, and trophy whackers, I readily admit there are plenty of individual exceptions to the rules above, but if you're seriously offended by this paragraph, you aren't one of them. (laughs) Once I had two doctors from Houston, a car dealer from Dallas, and his wife as my foursome. (laughs) Guess what happened? I spent an entire week staring at the back of the doctor's heads, trying to determine if it was possible, through sheer concentration, 
to make a person's head explode by (laughs) mental telepathy. At the time, it seemed like a worthy research project. The limit then was two king salmon per person for the week. By the end of the first day, they were limited out. This despite numerous warnings from their guide, me, before killing their second fish that should they hook or land a huge one later, it would be released. Of course, three days later, one of the docks hooks an immense fish, the biggest I'd ever seen from that river. A giant slab of chrome that would have weighed close to 60 pounds. To avoid the inevitable conflict, I spent the entire hour-long fight working to help the fish escape. But no such luck. When the fish finally came to shore, I was asked, cajoled, and pleaded with. I was offered money. I was even threatened with bodily harm. And you know what? I can't even begin to describe the incredible pleasure I felt when I twisted the hook loose and watched that fish swim away. Next day, the wife miraculously hooked one even larger, fought it with great efficiency, and happily released it without complaint. So what's the point of the story? I don't really know. (laughs) Other than it had to be a sign of something, maybe that if all clients were women, I'd still be guiding, or more likely that I was simply in the wrong line of business. More signs that I was in the wrong line of business. Secretly relishing clients' discomfort from bugs or lack of adequate rain gear. (laughs) Covertly exacerbating husband-wife conflict when the woman finds more success than her spouse. Purposely seeking out the most exposed, windiest spots for clients having trouble casting. (laughs) Trying to make people's heads explode with brain waves, and yeah, we already covered that one. Anyway, guilty as charged. So why did I do it, not just once, but for five summers? I mean, other than some seriously latent masochistic tendencies. Because in all reality, despite my conflicted thoughts about guiding, it was one of the best things I've ever done. It was an opportunity to be on the water every day, to intimately know the changing tides, river flows, and water patterns, to live, eat, work, and fish with my best friends in the world, and yes, rare as they were, some great moments with wonderful clients. Mostly, though, it was because the fishing was unbelievably good, and I got to fish it every day of the season. Selfish reasons all, I know, and in retrospect, I didn't deserve any of it. What did I deserve? besides a swift kick in the ass. Probably the lesson that being a good fisherman qualifies you to guide about as much as eating chicken hearts makes you a thoracic surgeon. (laughs) With this realization, and much to the relief of everyone concerned, I quit the business for good. Now I'm free to concentrate on the inherently fun to do with people you like part, and leave the guiding to those who are actually good at it. But if you're ever on a guided trip, happily flinging your flies from the front of the boat, and you suddenly start to feel a strange pressure building inside your skull, (laughs) take a close look at the person on the oars. If he or she appears to be deeply focused on, say, the back of your head, (laughs) with maybe a poorly hidden, demented grin forming, watch out. It's probably somebody a lot like me. Your only hope, then, is to ask yourself this one simple question. Do I deserve this? Thank you. The story you just heard Tamina read took place at this really cool event called Writers on the Fly, which is basically a live version of stories you'd find in the Drake. And the reason we're talking about this is twofold. Writers on the Fly is about to hit the road for its annual Cascadia tour, so I wanted our listeners in the Pacific Northwest to know about this tour. 
Because if you listen to this podcast, you're probably into fly fishing and storytelling. And that's exactly what Writers on the Fly is. But for those of you who don't live in the Pacific Northwest, there is another way to experience these great stories from the comfort of your home. And that's through a new fly fishing podcast called The Fly Tapes. In this episode, we're going to look into how this event came to be and hear a few excerpts from this new podcast. Stick around. I'm sitting outside right now, but my rental car is nearby, and I can go sit inside the rental car if you think that would be better. To talk about the origins of Writers on the Fly, I called up the guy who really started this whole thing, Jason Rolfe. Part of the time, I am a fly fishing guide. I got on the Puget Sound for sea run uh, cutthroat trout, and then the rest of the time, I like guiding for steelhead, swinging for steelhead, and the rest of the time when I'm not guiding, I spend working on my own writing and working on kind of these different writing-related projects, film work, and just random stuff like that. These writing projects include freelancing for various magazines, organizing writers on the fly, and now producing a new podcast called The Fly Tapes. I got in touch with Jason while he was between fishing sessions in Hawaii. So I've been targeting bonefish. Well, I've been wanting to target bonefish. You know, I've seen two or three bones, but just they were so close that I just couldn't get a shot at them. Cut a couple weird little trigger fish. It's been fun anyway. Anyways, back to the matter at hand. You want to tell me a little bit about Writers on the Fly? Well, Writers on the Fly is basically a reading series that I started. And the reason I started it was because I studied writing fiction and poetry. And back then, there was some sort of literary reading going on, you know, once or twice a month. Life is like a lime. It's tart and tangy. Sweet. Oh, so sublime. And I loved going to those readings. And so fast forward 10 years or so, I kind of got the idea to bring that reading idea to fly fishing. So Jason gathered up a crew of fly fishing writers and had them present their work in a live format. They started off performing one-off shows in Seattle and Portland. And eventually these evenings of storytelling became writers on the fly as we know it today. And starting November 14th, Jason Rolfe and his crew of speakers will make their way from Bend, Oregon to Vancouver, B.C. In addition to shows in those two cities, they'll perform in Portland, Seattle, and Bellingham. The upcoming Cascadia tour will feature the works of a ton of great writers, including frequent Drake contributors Chris Santella, Gregory Fitz, Amanda Monte, and Will Rice, as well as a few names you've probably seen in the Flyfish Journal, John Toby. Nathaniel Riverhorse Nakadate, and the editor of the Flyfish Journal, Steve Duda. And then we're also going to have an art show, and that's going to be traveling with the tour at each stop, and that's going to feature art from Casey Underwood, Tyler Hackett, Paul Puckett, Amy McMahon, and Jake Keeler. You know, there's going to be some great art. Every reading is going to support a different nonprofit. Organizations like the North Umpqua Foundation, the Conservation Angler, YMCA's Bold Gold program, which takes inner-city kids and gets them out in the mountains. In Bellingham, it'll benefit the North Sound chapter of TU, and in Vancouver, the Steelhead Society of British Columbia. And so, you know, a lot of different stuff going on. That, that side of it is another part that's, that's really important to me. Now that we know a little bit about writers on the fly, let's hear another story from Dylan Tomina recorded at said event. But before we can do that, a few words from our sponsors. 
This episode of the Drake Cast is sponsored by Scott Flyrods. I'm back in Wisconsin this week visiting my parents, so I figured I'd better play some ads featuring one of my fly fishing mentors. Can you say who you are? Tim Adler, I'm Elliot's father. So this week's episode is sponsored by Scott Flyrods. Can you tell about uh, the time we went down to the White River in Arkansas and what happened to my favorite Scott Flyrod? Well, as I recall, you were rowing and I was fishing off the front deck. Things were going pretty well and maybe I got hooked up or something on the bank and uh, we swung around. Things looked pretty good till we swung around and you backed right into a rock and there went the tip of the fly rod. And how was I feeling when that happened? Uh, I recall the phrase, oh shit, coming out. Well, that was the second fly rod, and maybe the third, you'd broken the tip off in the last four weeks. This may have been the third rod broken in as many weeks, but it happened to be my favorite rod. Thankfully, I sent my Scott Radiant 8 weight into the repair shop, and three weeks later, I was back on the water slinging streamers with that same rod. To find your favorite rod, visit your local fly shop or scottflyrod.com. We're also super fortunate to be sponsored by Yellow Dog Fly Fishing Adventures. Okay, Dad, where have you always wanted to go fishing? Oh, I would guess Alaska would have been my best bet. And why would you want to go to Alaska? Because there are sections there that uh, they'll fly you in, drop you off, and you don't see anybody for the next week, and you're all on your own. And what kind of what kind of fish would you like to catch up there? Obviously salmon. And as it turns out, Yellow Dog is partnered with over 20 lodges in Alaska where you can find both salmon and solitude. To plan your next adventure, visit yellowdogflyfishing.com. Alrighty, on to Tomina's next story. Uh, so this is a this is a, a short story that's uh, much more of kind of a standard fishing story, um, but it's uh, I wrote this about the Deschutes, and I figure a lot of you being here in Portland, uh, you guys are people here have the Deschutes as their home river. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's an awesome place, one of my favorite places. I spent a bunch of time there, um, flipping around on the rocks and avoiding the heat and that sort of thing. So this is a story about that. This is called Luck. The old Subaru's water pump blows just outside the Dalles. Our already failing plan to be at Max Canyon before dark is now officially shot and the whole trip appears to be in jeopardy. Visions of a week spent camping behind the gas station waiting for parts swim through my heat-addled brain. At 7 p.m. on an unseasonably sweltering September evening in the central Oregon desert, I feel as far from catching a steelhead on a fly as you would in Phoenix, Arizona. But at least it would be cooler there. Heat shimmers above the asphalt as I step onto the road and stick out my thumb. By 10 o'clock, I've somehow located a hyper-caffeinated late-night mechanic who's willing to work immediately. He tows the old sube behind his dilapidated pickup truck, unlocks the garage at a local gas station, and tears into her. A few calls, and he miraculously comes up with the exact water pump, although we consciously avoid inquiring about how he got it at this time of night here in the middle of nowhere. Why, we ask instead, would he go to such lengths for complete strangers? Boys, he says, veins bulging on his sweat and grease streaked forehead. My car broke down in this place 10 years ago and I'm still here. <laughs> I'd hate to see it happen to you. <clears throat> Next door is a cafe billing itself as home of the world's biggest burger. Not the best, not the tastiest, 
the biggest. We order three. The waitress smirks. Each contains one beef patty the size of a manhole cover, half a dozen fried eggs, a ham steak, 10 slices of bacon, three tomatoes, a head of lettuce, half pound each of cheddar Swiss and blue cheese, and about a quart of mayonnaise. Delicious. Between the three of us, we max out having consumed exactly half of one. The waitress wraps the remaining two and a half burgers in foil and stuffs them into three separate grocery bags. Sweet, Carson says. Now we don't have to stop for supplies. <laughs> Which works out perfectly since by the time we hit the road and roll through Maupin, the town is silent, shuttered, and deeply asleep. No groceries, no ice, no water. But what do we care? We're going steelhead fishing. Strangely, the campground is deserted. Ghost town. One of us says, sleep when you're dead, and we wade her up under a velvety pre-dawn sky. The exhaustion and hassles of the previous 24 hours evaporate as I tie on a purple peril in the faint beam of my headlamp, hands shaking in anticipation. Just as the sky starts showing light in the east, I make my first mend and feel the fly start to swing. By noon, we haven't touched a fish and our excitement collapses suddenly into fatigue. We drag ourselves back to the car, set up camp, and keel over to nap away the midday heat. When we get up, Carson discovers the red shoelaces from his wading boots are gone. Dave says he probably forgot to put them on in the first place. Carson says, you don't wade the Deschutes for six hours without shoelaces and not miss them. <laughs> the dry heat has us all on edge. A fishless evening followed by another fishless morning followed by another fishless evening and on and on for two more broiling cloudless days. In the afternoon, I tie flies until my bobbin and a spool of tinsel mysteriously disappear. Carson hobbles around in his laceless boots. Dave fishes demonically as if he might conjure up a fish through sheer persistence. And through it all, we gnaw away at those two and a half burgers. <laughs> On the third hot and extremely fishless day, a guy comes down in an old wooden drift boat and rows over to talk. Says we're insane to be fishing and camping in this heat says he hasn't touched a fish in weeks, and until the weather turns, it's hopeless. No rain in the forecast, he says, but when it comes, the fishing will be unbelievable. We stagger back to camp. Our mood is compounded when I realize I can't find the car key I'd left on the driver's side seat. After a thorough and fruitless search of the car, the tent, and all our gear, I tear a chunk off the world's oldest burger and try to ignore the now translucent mayonnaise and crumbling bun. <laughs> I think we should bail as soon as we figure out how to hotwire the car, I say. <laughs> Anyone seen my pack of gum, Dave asks. For lack of anything better to do and trying to fight back the rising panic of being stranded, I pop the hood. And there, sitting in the middle of a huge wreath of twigs, feathers, and gum wrappers woven together with red shoelaces and silver tinsel, sits my car key. Behind the key sits a fat, beady-eyed pack rat staring at me with obvious disdain. <laughs> We start laughing and don't stop until tears run down our faces. When we recover, I start loading gear, relieved and happy to be heading home. What are you doing, Carson asks. Getting out of Dodge, I say. Are you nuts, he says. I just got my lucky shoelaces back and we have all the good water to ourselves. Let's fish. Logic wins out. I unpack the car, crawl into the tent and fall into a dreamless sleep. Sometime during the night, a thick layer of clouds rolls in from the coast, and by morning, heavy raindrops are pouring out of the sky through cool, sage-scented air. There's still half a burger left.
There's something special about hearing an author tell his or her story. You don't have to guess where the inflection points should be. You don't have to wonder if the author speaks with a drawl or a nasally Midwestern accent. It's all right there. It's all in your ears. And the stories that you've heard so far are from a new podcast that focuses exclusively on writers within the fly fishing world. And it's called The Fly Tapes. The Fly Tapes, they kind of just grew out of the reading series, the, the writers on the fly series. I was recording the readings and not really sure, you know, what I was going to do with them. But then I, I was listening to lots of different podcasts and things and just kind of slowly, you know, started to come up with this idea of featuring people doing the readings and then doing interviews with those writers just to kind of talk about their work and their life and fishing and, you know, whatever else would come up and just trying to have a good, easy, personal interview that really just kind of, kind of showing people who writers are. I think it's really interesting to learn more about a writer. And I think the more you know about a, a person who's writing, I think the more you're going to be able to get from their stories or from their poems or whatever it is. If you're at all familiar with the long form podcast, it's similar to that. Only all of the writers are also fly fishers. So far, there are two episodes of the Fly Tapes available on iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. I highly recommend you check them out, because you'll get to hear the stories behind the stories that I featured in this episode. You can also find a link to a video about Writers on the Fly on our website, drakemag.com. To end this week's episode, we have one final story from Dylan Tomina. Much like the Drake cast, the Fly Tapes also likes to focus on the importance of conservation within fly fishing. Take it away, Dylan. This is uh, a little bit more serious. This is a, a piece about salmon conservation. And salmon conservation is something that's really important to me. I consider steelhead a Pacific salmon, and it's something that I spend quite a bit of time working on. And I've, I've thought about it a lot, not just in terms of what we need to do and the actual nuts and bolts of salmon conservation, but but a little bit more philosophically about what it means and what salmon mean to us here. So this is uh, kind of my expression of that. Uh, this is called Salmon Dreams. At night I dream of salmon gliding through stormy seas, turning streamlined noses toward a faint scent of their birth rivers. In brackish bays, feeling the pull of lunar motion and a taste of sweet water. Beneath swirling canyon pools, rain spackling the surface and silver bubbles streaking past like shooting stars. Under high summer sun, I think of salmon in more calculating terms. Where are they on this tide? How deep? What will they take? But I have waking dreams as well of the Elwha's legendary 100-pound Chinook salmon, of sockeyes spawning 6,500 feet above sea level in the Sawtooth Mountains of Idaho of the staggering numbers of fish that once filled Puget Sound. I think of deep ocean elements found a thousand miles from the sea carried on Mother Nature's conveyor belt, migrating salmon high into distant mountain ranges. I think of traditional first salmon celebrations and a 10,000 year story of humans and fish evolving together. I think of my own life, from early memories of fishing with my father to the places and people I've come to know in the years since, all measured in terms of salmon. And of course, I think of my young children and our shared connection to these fish. Such thoughts and dreams, though, do not come without concern, or maybe it's fear. Will my generation bear witness to the last wild salmon runs? 
Our growing population appears relentless in its destructive powers. We harm salmon through neglect with shopping malls, resource extraction, energy needs. And we harm them out of love with misguided hatchery supplementation, non-selective fisheries, and open water fish farms. Salmon conservation often feels like plugging one leak in the dam, a fitting if ironic metaphor, only to see two more spring up just out of reach. But then I think of my kids again and theirs. My mind wanders back to dreams of enormous Chinook salmon powering up through free-flowing Elwha Rapids, of sockeye schools cruising the air-clear waters of high alpine lakes, of wave after wave of chrome bodies pouring into Puget Sound, and I dream of my kids and theirs returning to meet them. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This has been the Drake Cast.